Welcome to Arc Next Sessions, episode 93. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Amelia, Donna, and Ken. In this year-ending episode, we'll each share some thoughts about what we each expect in 2017, otherwise known as the predictions episode. What do you guys think? Is it going to be a good year? It's going to be another uh, 2016. Man, it was a complete expectation, which seems across every single publication that we could just treat 2016 as the worst year ever. It's like I've been reading all of these year end lists, these wrap ups and such. And it just is like, I'm glad we all agree on this certain point that is in the entirety of human history, 2016 was the worst. And we can now move on. And how could 2017 be any worse? And of course, that is a terrible question <laughs> to begin <A> terrible question. <laughs> with because, of course, it can get worse. It can get way worse. We're not immune. Yeah. Yeah, it can absolutely get worse. <laughs> I think the silver lining is that there are a lot of lessons to take into 2017 that we learned in 2016. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that people will become more proactive applying those lessons. It's kind of like if we didn't, if we didn't learn anything from this, then we don't deserve to have a better 2017. Then, yeah, then it's got to be giant meteor 2017 <laughs> just wipes us out. Yeah. So who would like to get started with their prediction for 2017? I will. And I will because what one of my predictions definitely ties into what you just said, Paul, about us being sort of being more proactive. So my first prediction is very simple. And that is that, uh, or let's say deceptively simple, <laughs> because the prediction is that wood is going to become a much more popular and well-documented and researched building material for uses like high-rise buildings and long spans in the form of things like CLT and other composites. You know, the wood industry has been really pushing different ways of using wood in much more ambitious applications. And I see that happening in more and more ways, especially in the United States. It's already happening a lot in Europe, and I see it coming here more. But along with that, here's my prediction number two, is that we're going to get pushback from traditional industries against things like engineered wood and any other kind of what might be considered a cutting edge kind of technology. I think that traditional applications of technology like the steel building, you know, like like using coal, for example, that those industries are really going to be fighting hard to maintain their status. And we are going to have to be pushing harder against those traditional notions and saying, yeah, no, we want progression. We want things to change. We want things to get better. And so I'm embracing wood as a new technology and in, and in new applications. And I'm prepared to push back, like you were saying, Paul, against things that I think are not being progressive. That's a prediction both for the future of the profession and for your own. It's like a resolution prediction wrapped together. Right. It is kind of both. Yeah. I mean, I think that basically we're entering a time when we need to be more skeptical than we've been. We've maybe not been skeptical or critical enough of certain things. And frankly, that's, you know, in part why Trump was elected, if you ask me. So I think we need to be skeptical of everything that we hear about our industry, about other industries. You know, I think we need to go into what we learn about other industries with the same amount of knowledge and skepticism that we bring to our own specialization, which is architecture in our case. I just think there's going to be a whole lot of people and a whole lot of industries and companies trying to pull us backwards and pull the wool over our eyes. And we just have to be real skeptical about it. So my prediction is that a lot of people are going to be very skeptical in the coming year, but it's going to be out of necessity. <laughs> and then my other prediction is just around a couple of terms that, again, these terms, I think, bolster up what you're saying, Paul, and what I'm saying, that we need to be proactive and we need to take action rather than just wait for things to happen. Mimi Zeiger, Mimi Zeiger wrote a great article using the phrase radical hope, where she talked about the sort of radical firms and architects of the 60s and whatnot. And if maybe in the coming years, 
this is the kind of thinking that architects need to do more of, that we need to be able to think in very radical ways to keep things moving forward. And then the Instagram star Jill is Black used the term revolutionary honesty, which she is using in terms of speaking about Blackness in the United States in ways that is revolutionary and very uncomfortable, but really, truly honest. So my prediction around these terms and around especially that one revolutionary honesty is that Donna Sink on Archonnect may also become another profiled name that is not linked specifically to me. And that profile will become very revolutionarily honest because it's hard to be revolutionary honest revolutionarily honest in your own professional life. So I may, you may see another profile pop up that sounds a little similar to me. Oh, Donna. (laughs) Oh, man. I'm looking forward to that one. Yeah. Is a username quantum taken? (laughs) That's an interesting name. Actually, you know, maybe that should be, if you could do a slight modification on it, then you could eke that out a little bit. You could, you could compete on the own turf. Yeah. So those are my main predictions. And I think, you know, there's nothing there's nothing strange there. I think you guys all agree with me that we're going to have to move forward being very analytical and skeptical of things and, yeah, trying to make the world a better place. <laughs> nice predictions. And in the vein of the overall frustration with um, certain institutional powers letting us down in certain ways, Ken, I believe you also had some predictions in that vein. I think this year is, I, th- I don't know, I think they're probably just waiting for the right moment, but I think um, there's been a significant enough pressure from organizations inside and outside of the profession, outside the AIA, that I think Ivy is not going to be there anymore. Hmm. Um, I don't know when it's going to happen. I think it's, it should happen pretty soon. You don't want to take that too long into the new year. I'm kind of surprised that he hasn't gone already. I get the sense that they feel like they've weathered weathered the storm, but I suspect that uh, despite their initiatives and in their um, adopting of, uh, and putting out a $1 million grant, is it a grant? I think it's a grant. Yeah. Grant for uh, equity. I still think that's you know, that's that's a great first start. I think the pressure should just be kept up. I think the it's the messenger, um, maybe not the message. Um, <laughs> maybe it is the messaging. <laughs> maybe it's a combination of both. But, you know, I think with the future administration coming in, I think it really is incumbent upon uh, us as uh, professionals to kind of be very tactical, uh, have a strategic vision, but be very uh, operate very tactically. Mm-hmm. And I think it seems pretty clear. And there was a, I think I just saw a new news story that the infrastructure, there's a concern about the infrastructure spending not going to be there um, like Trump had promised. And I was kind of surprised the AIA didn't issue a letter about that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Given how they're so quick to respond to just about anything. So I think there's going to need to be a shakeup at the AIA and I think Ivy's gone. I tend to agree with you on that one. And it may not be directly and immediately Robert Ivey, but I think there's going to be some significant changes at the national leadership. Do you guys think that's going to happen based on continued efforts from outside of the AIA to kind of reform it, as we've seen so much rallying around the Not My AIA movement and such, and hope is, so is it going to be a continuation of the the efforts there? Or do you think it's ultimately going to have to just come from inside, like that they're just going to have to, at some point take responsibility into their own hands and just do it. I like to think it's going to be younger, active members from across the country saying, hey, wait a minute, this is our AIA and it's not doing or being what we want it to be. I think, Ken, you were the one who said we need some young people to start running for national office in the podcast, right? Yeah. I feel like that energy could swell up. And, you know, look, I mean, you don't have to win. 
running for office at the AIA doesn't mean that you're running, always running to win. You're running, you can run to make a point. I mean, hell, if, if Jill Stein can do it, exactly. why can't we? And exactly. I don't want to be the guy to run. I mean, I would love to run for office. I don't have any, I've been looking at how to do that because I think there's, there's this impression in the hierarchy. I think that you have to wait that you have to get to principle at a firm, that you have to run the run the, the, the typical course of AIA stuff to before you can actually run for office. I say, well, is it in the bylaws? So dig into the bylaws, figure out what, what's required of you to run for office. I mean, if the guy coming in to be president can basically run on zero experience, then I mean, we could put up a janitor, put up Pedro for president, and I would certainly get behind Pedro. But, you know, I think it just run, make a make a point of, of saying this is where we stand. We stand. I'll stand behind you I and mean, I'll, I'll, I'll fight your battles for you. I'll fight them with, alongside you. I, you know, I don't want to run because I'm just another white guy and it doesn't we don't need another white middle aged <laughs> white guy to run for office. But I want to I mean, there's a part of me, like I said, I want to run just because I don't know what it is to run. And I know what I've seen people have to do to run. I just think that that convention needs to just go away because it sets up a false expectation that the only way you can actually effectively make change is to get so far along in your career that the only path forward for you in your professional life and in your professional organization was well, a natural course. Well, I mean, I would love it if Catherine ran for president. Yeah. I mean, I think Catherine's voice would be is something that is sorely needed in, in kind of the body. I would love it if Rosa Shang ran. I think, you know, these are the kinds of people that we need to, you know, to really recapture and take the message back from the kind of old guard. And I think they have the, the power to do it. And I would wholly support that. I agree. A hundred percent. So, Ken, if Ivy were to leave the AIA soon, do you have any predictions of who would actually take his place besides who you would like to see take his place? Well, it seems that we need somebody who's who's pretty media savvy, who has a really good jawline, um, <laughs> who has a full head of hair, and likes architecture. And they're from the U.S. That's the problem. From the U.S., I, I've got one person in mind, and and I don't want to you know get Donna too crazy here, <laughs> but I really think it should be Brad Pitt. I mean, Absolutely. honestly, he's got. You know what? I mean, he's now getting divorced. He doesn't. He have needs to deal a with solid. Oh my god! Nine to five. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You know, we could be his savior, <laughs> or not. We. I'm not a part of that, but the architecture community, <laughs> the American Institute of Architects membership, could be Brad Pitt's savior. I mean, Absolutely. just shake it up. You know, drain the foundation. I don't know what the <laughs> what the equivalency would be. We'd certainly probably get more donations. That would probably, it'd probably run up. We would get more donations. I mean, I think, you know, I, I remember reading back in the 90s that Brad Pitt had bought the the rights to do the Fountainhead again. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, remake the Fountainhead. So that was one of the things I had remember reading. And I don't know if that's true, but I mean, he, you know, I mean, Robert ran a magazine. I know he's an F. I don't even know how he, is that an honorary F? Did he honorarily get yeah. F'd? I mean, yeah, I think so. you know. I mean, who better to do the effing than Brad Pitt? <laughs> Brad Pitt can eff me anytime he wants. <laughs> Wait, that was my alter ego, the one, the, the identity that I haven't set up yet. Ah, okay. Out loud. You need, that to, wasn't Donna. you need to develop a different voice for the podcast so that we can distinguish between the two. <laughs> Sorry. I'm not even drinking. Oh. <laughs> oh, Ken, what other predictions do you have? Um, slightly dystopic. Visions of the future. I say slightly. I think that obviously we're going to step out of the Paris Climate Agreement. I think there's no 
reason that we're going to stay in that. I think that's pretty obvious by just who he's nominated for, for EPA and for Secretary of State, no less. That clearly that um, we're doing fine as a planet. Burning fossil fuels is, is the right way to go. Drill, baby, drill. Frack all you want. I mean, I think maybe not this year, but I do think in the future we're going to see we're going to have a state in the United States that nobody will live in, that it will just be an actual uh, refinery or a drilling site. And I, my first <laughs> real like long term prediction is that Oklahoma will no longer be habitable enough that there, there's so much fracking going on right there that they're going to wall off the state. And it'll be the first state that'll have <laughs> as its representative body, large fracking corporations. Oh, and nice. The, that's our that's dystopic future for that for that state. Yeah, I would read that sci-fi. I, I would too. I yeah. Thinking about, I mean, I think that's a great idea for a sci-fi flick, a television series. So that's one. I think the things that scare me the most are... All the things that get publicly funded that are, are that funded by the government, the PBS, you know, Medicare, those kinds of things. I think the biggest thing that's going to affect cities is that the cities that are declaring sanctuary cities are going to be threatened with loss of federal dollars if they do not get rid of that status. So I think cities generally are going to come under attack by this administration. I think that, which is the weird thing about that, is going to push people out of the cities. So the cities were a desirable place to live because of transportation, because of opportunities, because of uh, liberal values, all, all of these things. So I think all of that is going to be uh, put under attack and it's going to put a strain on the suburbs, which they really can't deal with that kind of migration. They don't have the infrastructure. They don't have the ability to deal with that. So I think it's going to burden those outer ring suburbs. So that's, I think, is a is a big deal. I think, obviously, the funding from green initiatives are going to be gone under the guise of cost savings. And the weird thing is, is that I think it's a federally mandated law that all federal vehicles are either natural gas or trend towards green energy. So, and that's a mandate. So if they get rid of that regulation and get rid of mandating that uh, cities and buses are moving towards a, a greener platform with natural gas and other other sources of uh, energy, that'll actually affect the, <laughs> the fracking going on in Williston. So there's going to be a net loss of jobs because of that. And I think you're going to see this weird kind of, this could be a weird thing happening where energy, uh, domestic energy uh, production increases, but then but then you're going to have this rush away from that because of the mandate going away. So that might, this is weird. It's just very weird time, I think, just around energy policy. And this is, this came up because I was asking our, uh, this 401A fund administrator, asking him what he saw for the future. And they said that his basic opinion was that you're going to see an increase in fracking and natural gas drilling, but you're going to see that energy prices are going to drop overall because uh, the cost of domestic energy production goes up. OPEC becomes less of a uh, less of a stranglehold, so then energy prices will tend to fall. I think there's still something to be said about like a, a you know the mandate is actually pretty important in driving down those costs. So if that goes away, maybe that doesn't happen. My other big thing I think is um it's kind of a weird again it's a little bit of a weird thing. I think it's a good thing. So there was a. I had been talking with uh, Linda about a week or so before this piece came out in the New York Times that I thought there would be a progressive states' rights push. And then this article came out on the New York Times talking about 
there's a, a progressive, there's a movement towards progressive states' rights and how that has occurred throughout the history of the United States. So I think that there's going to be a, a shift where we do have control over state houses and governors, primarily California and New York State, where we can say that all the tactics that the right used on Obama are going to be coming back at the Trump administration tenfold. And those states, as we know, that uh, as California goes, so goes the country. So everything, there's going to be a shit ton of lawsuits coming at the Trump administration to kind of stop any efforts to do what they're doing. So there's, uh, I think there's going to be a lot of support around that. And I'm hoping that you know, we can, again, return to this kind of idea of thinking more locally, keeping control over the things that we've achieved in our states. And I know, you know, like for Donna, it's a, it's a much more of a challenge there in Indiana. But here in, in Minnesota, I think we're going to do our best to try to hold fast and think, you know, think locally, think tactically and, and try to stay pretty uh, close to our progressive values and try to work that angle for the next four years and then just get that asshole out of office. Uh, speaking of California and states' rights. Apparently, the California secessionist movement recently opened a embassy in Moscow. And I don't know ex oh, really? exactly what this constitutes, but it's enough. It's just a presence by enough of the of the leaders in this still very, very, very fringe movement to formally have California secede. But can I completely like hear you on the um, overall kind of progressive claim for states' rights and how complicated that will be in the course of trying to actually keep it progressive and not just fracture into what we've seen happen previously with states' rights? But I'm also like very concerned about the whole sanctuary cities aspect of what might come next in the next four years. Although I do believe that whatever will happen to the population of cities and the makeup of cities in reaction to the incoming presidency won't be felt for while he's still in office, all more likely, as in like the how we've seen this supposed renaissance happening in downtowns and such over the last decade, that yeah. these things will happen so slowly that we're going to be trying yes. to figure out exactly what effect something like this administration might have on those cities over the very long term. And in fact, the day this podcast airs, Thursday the 22nd, we published a Brexit diary, and which goes into this a little bit more about how regional cities and basically fringe cities are going to become more of a powerhouse of sorts in creative industries like architecture, because as the person who, who writes the diary says, they predict that there will be this kind of flight from these major cities in the UK, specifically about Brexit, because of this kind of insular quality to those cities that they feel they need to combat. So overall, of course, very different contexts, but a perhaps a common trend to, to look at in 2017. Definitely agree with that. I should have said that as well, because I totally agree with what you're saying. It won't be felt immediately, but it will happen. So I I feel like this is a good segue into my prediction only because I have kind of like a uh, total wishful thinking one to combat the whole <laughs> doom and gloom, which of course could still be doom and gloomy. But I'm convinced that LA is going to win the bid for the 2024 Olympics. And it's going to be insane. It's going to be the best Olympics ever because we're going to basically do what we did in the 80s, which is like spend zero money, have super cheap everything, and they're going to do their magic with traffic and figure out a way for everything, to, everyone to get wherever they need to go. But we're going to take that money that we do get and spend it on a incredible renaissance of transit funding. One of the silver linings in the latest election was in California, these proposition I believe it was Prop M passed that we just gave a bunch of funding towards more public transit initiatives and will actually <laughs> get things built, which is super exciting. And has and as L.A. has feeling the continuing pains of staying in this entire fabric built on freeways and 
one person per car capacity, how we just need to get out of that. And that maybe something like the Olympics could in a historical context be seen as one of the major helpers that helped us dig our way out of that. Almost literally digging lots of subway tunnels. That would be awesome. (laughs) In terms of other predictions, I feel like I'm totally overwhelmed just from my psychic visit that I did for the one-to-one episode that we recently (laughs) aired where she told me. Which was so good. (laughs) Thank you. So good. If you haven't listened to that yet, everyone, go listen to it. It's excellent. It was lots of fun. She was a great sport too. She she said she knew nothing about architecture, but then she said some stuff and made me second guess. But her prediction, which I'm just going to throw out here again, in case you guys haven't listened to the one-to-one, although I encourage you to do that, is that when I asked her just general things that will happen in 2017, what are kind of the concerns, the ideas that will be big in architecture in 2017. She specifically said interactive walls, interactive facades. That was her big thing. She was like, this is going to become much more of a point of investment and an opportunity for people to be experimental and actually implement these designs. Because of course, we do have a lot of experimentation happening, but stuff that you might actually see in civic architecture or just on your, maybe your neighborhood White Castle will suddenly decide to (laughs) just have like an entire uh, wall built out of some kind of, you know, giant menu screen. I don't know. But these kinds of things will become more possible and there'll be a kind of creative explosion in them. So I'll give a hat tip to the psychic for coming up with that or reading, (laughs) seeing that. I don't know what the correct verb is in terms of referencing that actual fact, but she says it. it might happen. Final prediction will be, and Ken, you've definitely already kind of carved out all the potentially catastrophic legislative changes that might happen in 2017. (laughs) But I do believe incoming administration notwithstanding that the, just the demand for change of business legislation around sharing economy things is grown so strong that we just have to figure it out. <laughs> then people have to pass some really like, not necessarily binding, but just there has to be movement there. There has to be movement in figuring out how to legislate and how to regulate all these businesses that are coming up and have varying degrees of sharing qualities, um, whether it's Airbnb or Uber deciding to just say to hell with it and start driving autonomous vehicles around San Francisco before getting permission or things like that. There's just going to be way more of a dire need to do those things, both in terms of economic protections for consumers and for just citizens and for public entities, but also just for safety. That's also, I guess, a little bit of wishful thinking, but I do foresee definite movement in that field in 2017 in my crystal ball. Yeah, and it's not going away. It's only getting more diffuse and kind of spreading its tentacles across various industries. So it makes sense that that should happen. Yeah, it's not a prediction. It's a mandate. I'm saying (laughs) (laughs) all of you people listening out there, make it happen. (laughs) All right, Paul, what are your predictions for 2017? My predictions for 2017 is that we will finally start to begin to see kind of a grassroots effort or independent effort to address one of the biggest problems that I think we have been experiencing in the last few years, which is the way that we are consuming media and the way that that's affecting the world that we're living in. I think this election is a perfect example. And as a publisher of a, of a media site, you know, I see it firsthand. There's been a, a, a drastic change in the way that, that we consume media in the sense that it's based on popularity rather than intelligence. That's how media makes money these days through what people want to want to see and want to listen to and want to read. And what, what that is tends to be just popular content that has another side to it, which is also highly personalized content. I was helping somebody the other day retrieve their password in Facebook. You know, we finally got in and I, you know, I couldn't believe the world that they lived in. This is somebody that I figure, you know, that I think, you know, is someone fairly similar to me, but their social media 
world is so different. And for someone to be relatively similar to me from how I know them at a personal level and seeing, you know, how drastically their perspective on the world is different through this social media lens and through this. And the social media lens is really, you know, the, the lens that most people kind of see the world these days. And, you know, this problem has been becoming bigger and bigger as I, I think as this election proved in that we just are completely ignorant of what is going on in the world, to, in, in other people's worlds. And that combined with the really kind of pathetic state of education these days is a pretty horrible combination. And I think, you know, this problem has been growing for a while. I think the internet has played a, a big role in that. You know, I'm a I'm a big proponent of the internet. I love the internet, but it also, <laughs> this is the dark side of it. And I think that this 2016 has shown us the in a more clear way, the direction that we're going. So I think that in 2017, one of the biggest challenges that people will have personally, and also, you know, maybe even startups will, will try to find solutions to fixing this problem, you know, putting smart, intelligent, alternative viewpoints in front of people without giving a hundred percent choice of, you know, what, what to, to absorb in the world and also addressing the fake news problem. The fake news is rooted both in politics as well as money. You know, I, I was reading recently a story about how these fake news sites are generating millions of dollars by creating just uh, sensational articles for the sake of of making money. People pay attention to that. You know, and already outlets like Washington Post and Slate have been coming out with uh, browser extensions, which I think is a great first start, allowing people to install these extensions and actually get personalized vetting of news that you're looking at online to determine whether or not it's, it's trustworthy or real. But unfortunately, again, the problem is that the only people that are going to be installing these these browser extensions are the people that are thinking critically anyways. So anyways, I think it's a major problem. And I think we're going to start seeing the beginnings of, of trying to solve that problem before it gets a lot worse than it already is. Well, in the New York Times, even, you know, online, they say their subscriptions have gone up amazing amount of subscribers, new subscribers after the election. So hopefully that's a, a sign of something positive. It's a good thing. But... Those people that are subscribing to the New York Times are probably not the people that we need to have <laughs> subscribing to quality journalism. You know, it's like, how do we get the people that are believing all of this crap? Yeah, but here's the here's part. Of, I mean, I think I, I understand what you're I totally agree with what you're saying. I think the one thing that gets lost in, in this is the again, this election was one handed to the this particular individual by educated white people. It wasn't handed to him by readers of National Enquirer, which is basically what we're talking about. It's the National Enquirer readers who believe that Elvis walked into a diner the other day. So I think the problem is is, is something very different when the people that are college educated and white who are able to discern what is bullshit and what isn't bullshit are still voting for a complete fucking raving asshole. So I think I totally agree with you, um, but I think I'm hoping that people don't over overreact and just keep putting the fake news in the right context and saying, well, if mainstream media is something that you reject, then we can't have a conversation. And if you're going to continue to reject things that are balanced and thoughtful and presented in just a very considered way, you can keep reading your National Enquirer news, but it doesn't mean it's true. But I'm, I'm just, you know. I want to be a counter. I want to hold out <laughs> some hope for you, Paul. 
I do think, though, that in the context of this election, we've been able to like clearly articulate all of the problems that have arisen in the current media atmosphere. But those things have been existing for years and kind of percolating. And then they kind of just build to this horrible climax in the election because we were able to see how it was being leveraged very effectively by one party member. Yeah, I think we're finally seeing serious results. And the plugins, I think, are the most promising direction for the triumph of the eventual most critically backed position. I don't want to say the truth, but just the something that is actually defensible and at least truthful in how much it might know and might not know. Because yes, of course, if you're already subscribing to the Washington Post, you're already subscribing to Slate, then you're more likely to download this plugin. And I'm, I got to I gotta plug this plugin because it's so cool. It's um, a plugin that the <laughs> Washington Post created for Chrome where you can view a response or a kind of fact check on everything Trump tweets. So whenever he says something that either he won the popular vote or so-and-so is a terrorist, you can get a, a very quick and a very straight to the point explanation of what is flawed or what is simply false about what he's saying. But I think that there needs to be some kind of like non-news media organization that is ultimately doing those checks and having that kind of oversight. And even if insofar as not limiting it to online news, but something like when you watch the debates, it is so, or when you watch televised any type of political discourse, it's incredibly infuriating to see how quickly the information just dissolves and how you see someone, hear someone say something that is ridiculous or they put something in a ticker at the bottom of the screen. You're like, well, I know that's not true. And if you had some type of like real-time fact-checking going on, you would at least have a complex amount of information to deal with. And I think a lot of the problems with the fake news sites is that it's just so easy to design something kind of trustworthy looking. So <laughs> even if you know that what is being said has no, like you don't recognize these authors or the publication's name or anything, but it's like, to your mind, it looks legit. It looks kind of like the newspaper that you get delivered every morning or that you see at your cafe or whatever, then you're much more inclined to read it. So I think there is like these two kind of extra or two kind of formats outside of the actual content producers that can have a major role in making people more aware of the A, crap they're consuming or critical of everything they're, con they're consuming. Because of course, there's no real truth teller. And we can't like believe that, oh, if enough people just subscribe to the New York Times, then truth will prevail. Like that is definitely not going to happen. And I'm also very cynical in believing that, of course, the, that there's always a rush to donations anytime anything awful happens. And it, in no way means that there's going to be sustained support of anything. Womp womp. <laughs> I think uh, considering the way that people are having difficulty understanding truth and facts these days, I think I think we should we need to bring this back into like uh, education, starting at early education and just the to to enable the next generation of people to have a better understanding of real issues. I would love to see it doesn't have to be architecture schools in particular at all, but just most higher education would be ideal if it starts earlier, but at least in higher education that you teach an explicit, like, I don't want to say rhetoric course because that's patting myself on the back necessarily, but like something that gives people a real way to evaluate what they're reading and what they're consuming. Exactly. Not just what I had in high school, which was like, Wikipedia is bad, okay? Like, don't use that, which then, of course, <laughs> is not valid anymore. But just kind of something that that attests to the speed at which everything develops and doesn't feed you any fantasy that there are any, ever going to be hard and fast rules about how to tell what is truth and what is not, but just ways to keep your head above water and be like, okay, what do I know? Why do I think I know it? How can I defend it? Why, why should I share this? I think is another big one of people thinking that 
I can share information without being responsible for it, which is difficult. <laughs> it's a difficult premise. To me, yeah, it, it goes back to this word skepticism, which I'm just using more and more because I'm listening to the Skeptics Guide to the Universe podcast have been for a long time. But, you know, the ways that doctors go about evaluating health problem that is presented to them is based on skepticism. They constantly have to question themselves. Is this really what's manifesting or is it related to something else? Is that relationship a significant correlation or not? And that's what we just have to be doing more of in everything, everything that we do, which one of the things I thought about was, you know, the sort of what we've seen in the last year or two or three maybe has been a lot of these really fancy big projects like the Garden Bridge. You know, it's this wonderful new thing. It's going to be a big new bridge. It's designed by Heatherwick. It's spanning the Thames and it's going to be this great new place to go to. And if you really get skeptical about it and look at it, it's a privately owned space where, frankly, civic rights can be suspended. It's you're not allowed to bring bikes on it. Like, you know, we need to be really skeptical about who's funding everything and what its purpose ultimately is. Yeah. And that, that goes all the way down to the, you know, the Facebook post that your uncle sends you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it used to be that the headline was the thing that drew you into the piece. Now the headline thing is the thing that tells me about the author's intent or what they're trying to get across, right? So now you've got these clickbait headlines that, oh, so-and-so said this, check out what they did. And then when you click it, <laughs> you find out the headline doesn't even correlate to what's the, in the body of the piece. It's just meant to get you to click on it. Or it's meant you to blindly share it with everybody you know. Exactly. Mm. I think yeah, exactly. I think yeah. I think a lot of news is consumed just via headline these days as well. Right. Absolutely. I'm guilty of consuming by headline because I already, you know, I know that generally speaking, most of the things I read in the New York Times, I'm going to agree with. And sometimes I like some of the op-ed writers and sometimes I don't like them, but it'll catch me. And then, you know, there was something today that uh, Sean King from the Daily News posted about this uh, uh, Muslim kid on a plane, a Delta plane, who was getting kicked off the plane because he spoke something in Arabic. But then you, I shared it because I'm like, I trust Sean King. Sean King generally puts up good stuff. Um, and I shared it. And then and one of my Facebook friends said, hey, should be careful with that one. This guy is a provocateur and he deliberately does things. So it's not always very clear as to whether or not what is happening is uh, authentically happening or is it something he provoked just to get a response knowing that Delta has had issues with Muslims on uh, passenger planes. So it, it was, you know, it's really, very, very getting into some murky areas when people who write articles for newspapers aren't doing their own vetting. And I'm generally not too critical of Sean King because I think, generally speaking, his intent is is pretty clear. And I think this person who was thrown off the plane is making a, a good point. But at whose expense is it going to affect? It certainly brings him notoriety. It brings him more clicks to his page. He's certainly benefiting from it in some way. But is it going to harm? Does it, this person actually think it's going to harm someone who is on the plane, who is not a provocateur, who is just doesn't speak English and is generally trying to communicate to their spouse or to their children in their only language that they know? Is that going to impact them because it only raises the level of tension from other passengers on other planes or, or or other uh, or airlines, so it's a very we're getting into some murky areas in how we share, and we really need, like Donna said, we really need to kind of know who it is that's putting it out there, know what the intent is, know that you know just because a, a negative piece is written about somebody, who is the paper, who is the editor, who owns it, what is the relationship to the the subject being written about, and those things are often intertwined, and it's really it's very important that we know that. 
Yeah, I can. I could not agree more. And I think that one of the kind of scarier aspects of all of this is not just how we see fake news kind of bleeding into the physical space in terms of actual people's lived reality, but also in how certain conspiratorial, like prior, very underground internet discourses do get surfaced as well in the real world as being kind of seen on the same level as real news. And we saw that with, I don't want to go fully into it now because it's, frankly, I don't think I could do the craziness of it justice, but the whole Pizzagate conspiracy and the way that that ended up just coming to an intense and horrifying head and just very strange. And so how something that cannot even begin in a news publication context or any type of like fake or true news context, but instead of this kind of like vanguard truth seekers who are nonetheless just fine staying on their um, Reddit forum, how things like that can get translated into true action. And because of this context around there is fake news, there is real news. We don't know who to trust. We have to rely back on ourselves and our forums and our communities to tell us what the real conspiracies are. And that's kind of another like far more horrifying thing to me that I'm I'm really just don't know even what will happen to it or what how to deal with it, but I'm fascinated by it. Can I offer one more observation before I get to my last question? Sure. I think the one thing that we all us four white people need to be cognizant of and and very present in is that the likely reality of the future administration is not going to have a really dire impact on our world. In fact, I, I still posit that we're still going to be better off than most. And we always have been. And I think there's a certain level of complacency that comes into play when our situation economically isn't fraught with uncertainty. And if we know that going in, I think we're better off to leverage our privilege in a way that doesn't leave our black and brown brothers and sisters behind. And we just need to be able to look out for and use the the advantages that we have to a greater effect so that those in the communities that are at risk at this moment, because I know, all, I mean, my Facebook feed is filled with my friends who you can just see the fear. It's the fear is not underlying. It is fucking in my face. And I, I can't quote them, but I can the best I can do is carry their fear with me. So that's always a, a constant reminder that I can't become complacent. And uh, we need to call it out when we see it and be bold about it. And, um, you know, I'm trying, I'm trying my best to learn how to do that in a way that's not violent or extreme. So I have a lot of learning to do myself, but I think most, I think the three of you are much better at it than I am. I'm the only one who seems to curse on this episode. <laughs> it's not over yet. <laughs> uh, so I think if anything, I think it's not so much a prediction. It's a hope that we remain, our awareness remains sharp and we uh, remain resolved to the fact that while things may go well for us. There's a whole lot of people out there that's not going to go well for if uh, they do everything which we anticipate them doing. So that's my hope. Thanks, Ken. So I have, I do have one quick question or two quick questions for Amelia. If, oh, yeah. Okay? No, go ahead. Okay. Uh, Amelia, what are you reading and what are you listening to these days? Mm, okay. Well, <laughs> I feel like the last thing that I referenced on the podcast and so far as a book is the one I'm still reading because it's just a mo <laughs> monster of a text that I really can only read like 15 or so pages a day and then just have to put down to digest. But it is so essential to my current understanding of the world and I think would do everyone a great benefit to read. It's called Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, who won the Nobel Prize in Economics for Research and 
behavioral economics about like how we make decisions and why we make decisions. And it is just full of incredible case studies and stories about how incredibly irrational we are, but at least how our irrationality is predictable in certain ways. And it is no greater context I can think of to read this book than within the current media climate that we are inhabiting. I was lucky enough to do a guest lecture for a Cal Poly Pomona architecture studio focused on media and architectural representation because the students were trying to figure out different ways to present themselves and their portfolios online. And one of the ways to do that was through character building and online persona building. And um, in the guest lecture, I spoke a lot about Pepe, Pepe the Frog (laughs) being this kind Mm -hmm. of like unwanted mascot of the alt-right movement only through a strange multi-year progression of going from a Tumblr meme to being used to goad people and eventually becoming this alt-right symbol based on complete relocation and nothing actually from the original intent of the author who made it and how a symbol like that can kind of pervade news discourse despite the intents of its author and despite the actual content of it and how it can come to mean something completely different. And I only bring that up in a in an example because as an emblem of the media happening or a media context happening right now, we do see how easy it is for people to believe certain things that are so illogical or so not even presented to be reasonable. And what this book, Thinking Fast and Slow, really makes a amazing points over and over and over again about is how incredibly coupled the human sensation of reason and compassion are. And if you feel something, it's nearly impossible for you to not feel that thing. And it's always going to be impossible for your feelings to not inflect your reasoning. So if you feel something, you're already primed to think a certain thing. Regard, And the worst thing you can do is think that you're exempt from those rules. One of the biggest takeaways from the book is if you remind someone of a time that they were in power, they are more likely to believe that they are correct in saying what they're saying. And the example of that that I gave for the lecture was just a picture of the Make America Great Again hat. And it's kind of like all wrapped up in this. So I think if anyone <laughs> anyone can read, you, it's also a great book because it's all the social scientific research reference in it. You can just pick it up at any time and kind of read a chapter and be have your mind blown. It's not, it of course helps to read in order, but it's, it's enough of a non-narrative book that you can really do that. So that was a long-winded answer to the book that I'm still reading, but it's great. <laughs> so good. I recommend everyone to read it. And I also finished uh, a few weeks ago, a wonderful, wonderful text. It was like the first kind of narrative piece I had read in a really long time, but it's also not quite quite traditional narrative. DJ Waldy's Holy Land. Have you guys heard of this book? I feel like Mm -mm, um, I'm surprised it's not more common in in urbanist discourse, but it's um, a kind of experimental memoir by DJ Waldy about growing up in the Lakewood suburbs near Long Beach in Southern California, which were basically the first suburban complex in California, and how he describes incredible details in very simplistic language around the building of these suburbs and eventually his life living multiple decades throughout the developmental history of the suburb. And it's beautifully written, beautifully described, and just a really quick read. It's a relatively short book and full of historically accurate, fascinating information about suburban development in that era. Really beautiful and definitely, definitely a good, like, just really any age, I would say, could read this book. I would fully recommend it. That sounds crazy. Yeah. Super good. <laughs> and you're listening. What, what's your music taste? Oh, yeah. Oh, God. Okay. Oh, come on. <laughs> well, so I feel like the last people we've spoken about this with made a lot of references to Spotify and how Spotify has changed their listening habits. And I'm definitely also experiencing that where I used to have a few or a, a handful of treasured albums or artists that I could always listen to. And now I just I'm so spoiled where I just listen to a new album, at least at least several new albums a day where I just like don't even 
I am completely (laughs) at the will of the algorithm of Spotify and just take the recommendations and try them out. And of course, they don't always work, but I've managed to find some really good stuff. So one of the things that I do return to in that that Spotify is entirely responsible for exposing me to is Merlot, M-U-R-L-O, who I don't know anything about. I think he might be German, but that's some great great electronic music that I will not try to distinguish the genre of in any more detail. And I listen to that. There's just a few EPs, I think, at this point, maybe a few full albums that are just, they're all great. You can start anywhere. And as I'm sure a lot of also people are getting their, their uh, 2016 year in Spotify playlists, which <laughs> most of mine are like the first six spots are uh, songs from the Carly Rae Jepsen album that came out like maybe two years ago, but I'm still <laughs> enjoying. And she even put out like a I mean, calling it a B-side is kind of ridiculous, but she calls it a B-side and it is just pure pleasure. It is so good. And the last thing that I'll do is, is really just a plug for my brother. He loves metal music in all of its shapes and forms and has a fantastic, fantastic playlist of, I believe, like 48 hours of metal that doesn't really discriminate (laughs) (laughs) between any kind or or genres. It's just whatever he likes. And I would love to see people, I would love to have my brother's public playlist just bombed by our Connect subscribers if you're on Spotify and you like music that will either give you a headache or pep you up (laughs) or any combination of the two, or you'll just love it. But the playlist is called Now That's What I Call Shredding 28. And I encourage everyone who's ever been tired in an office in the afternoon and needs a little pick-me-up to start anywhere in that playlist and just see where it goes. Let's put a link to the playlist in the show notes. Oh, we will. We definitely Definitely. will. Definitely. Maybe we'll even put a link to Arcanex's top songs of 2016 and I th- I would love I would love listeners as well to share their top list because I think that's something that we especially thanks to Ken's eternal question I think we have we've accumulated some pretty great musical recommendations over the over the years of podcasting absolutely and thanks to Spotify we can put them all in one spot share your musical DNA with us do it mm, <laughs> yummy <laughs> oh and Big Frida has a Christmas album if anyone's into that so what no okay. way. yes yes. <laughs> It's not even from this year. I think it's from 2015, which I was like, how did I not know about this? And it's basically all old Big Frida songs. They sound exactly the same, but like riffing on classic Christmas carols. It's fun. Super fun. Excellent. I'm going to go listen to that as soon as we're done recording. Happy holidays. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that's it for 2016, guys, (sighs) for our Connect sessions. (sighs) Thanks to everyone out there listening all year and to this episode. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, ArcSessions, or with hashtag ArcConnectSessions. You can also send us an email to connect at ArcConnect.com. Now that the year's over, it's a great time for you to send us your feedback. Let us know what you would like to hear more about in 2017 so we can get your feedback and, and mull over it over the holidays and come back delivering all of your requests. <laughs> just just like a basic radio we play all your requests yes (laughs) well um so we wish everyone a very happy holiday season and we look forward to speaking to you again in 2017 have a great holiday everyone have a great uh, time off happy holidays y'all